This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, March 8, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. On today's show, almost two years into a pandemic, we take account of food security in Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith has that in about four minutes. Later, the new Broadway season at Walton Art Center has been unveiled. Actually announced My Fair Lady was coming, and then the pandemic happened. And so um, we're so excited to be the last tour stop um, for this tour. Um, My Fair Lady will be packing up as soon as the, the shows are over here in Fayetteville. From Chicago to Moulin Rouge, a full rundown of last night's season announcement later on our show. Arkansas lawmakers are nearing the end of a fiscal legislative session and are poised to give final approval to Governor Asa Hutchinson's $6 billion state budget. Members of the House and Senate passed identical versions of the budget in meetings yesterday. Speaking on the House floor, Republican Representative Lane Jean of Magnolia explained some key aspects of the bill. It's a $175 million increase, 2.99% from previous year's budget. Uh, also, the one-time schedule, the $150 million for various projects, the new prison, uh, I think the $30 million for the blind school is, is now in this budget instead of a one-time bill. Lawmakers also approved numerous appropriations bills for state agencies, including the Department of Transformation and Shared Services and the Commerce Department. Members of the House and Senate are expected to give final approval to the state budget today, with Governor Asa Hutchinson then signing it into law. Hospitals in northwest Arkansas continue to see fewer patients with COVID-19. There are a combined 32 patients with the virus, a half dozen fewer than this time on Friday. The state of Oklahoma is shifting its reporting of COVID-19 cases from daily to weekly. In a notice reflecting the change, the Oklahoma State Department of Health notes during the Omicron surge, it became increasingly evident that the daily case count number was many days delayed and at best only represented a portion of what was known to be the true current case count numbers. Many factors contributed to that, including lags in laboratory reporting, at-home testing, asymptomatic cases, as well as those who may have been sick and chose not to get tested. The department says the change in reporting will allow the health department to focus on key metrics that more accurately represent the impact of the disease in Oklahoma, like hospitalizations. The Walmart app will host a job fair this weekend for jobs at the venue this summer, including bartenders, ushers, stage crew, security, and concession attendants. The job fair will be at the AMP in Rogers Saturday from noon to 4. The Arkansas Razorback indoor track teams go into this weekend's NCAA championships with high rankings. The men's team is ranked number one in the country. The women are ranked number two in the nation. That's in yesterday's last polls released before the championship meet that begins Friday in Birmingham, Alabama. And the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the University of Arkansas campus is hosting the new musical Josie and Grace tonight at 7.30 for a one-night-only performance. The show is based on the lives of Josephine Baker and Grace Kelly and won the Critics' Choice Award for Best Play at the Orlando International Fringe Festival.
This is Ozarks at Large. Meal sites, both in and out of schools across the nation, are at risk of losing critical funding for their operations as USDA waivers that provide resources expire soon. The June 30th deadline for Congress to renew the nutrition waivers is approaching, according to No Kid Hungry's director, Jillian Meyer, leaving many schools and communities without plans to feed children and families in the summer and fall. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to Meyer about what this decision means for meal sites in the midst of supply chain and staff shortages. Throughout the pandemic, we have worked with the USDA and Congress to ensure that schools and community-based organizations have the flexibilities they need during these challenging times to ensure kids are getting access to food and three meals a day. Despite what might be happening with the pandemic, with quarantining, with schools closing, And unfortunately, those waivers that have allowed for schools and community organizations to have flexibility to meet the occasion actually are expiring. And so what we are hoping is that we can maintain these critical waivers so that we don't see a drastic increase in the number of kids and families struggling to access the food they need. How much time does Congress have to make this decision and school districts to be prepared for whatever that decision might end up being? That's a great question. The waiver authority expires at the end of June 2022. But unfortunately, the reason we're pushing so hard for answers now is that schools and community-based organizations are actually planning for next school year as we speak. They are looking at bids. They are negotiating new contracts. They are trying to hire staff, which we know is an incredible challenge at this time. They're navigating supply chain disruptions constantly, all without knowing what type of meals they'll need to serve or how they'll be reimbursed next year. So while we're still in the midst of obviously our current school year and they're operating as they normally do under these challenging times, they actually need to make decisions and are making decisions as we speak without the information to know what they'll need. How does the nationwide nutrition waiver actually help feed kids and how will it impact schools and their summer meal programs if it expires? Yeah, it's a great question. So schools have actually been serving all meals free to all kids. And that's through this waiver authority. The waivers have also really helped schools meet the issues they've been navigating throughout the pandemic. So they have been, you know, allowing for flexibility in the type of meals that are served. They're allowing for flexibility in how the meals get served. Um, Really, you know, school food service has been dealing with incredibly challenging times when it pertains to, you know, delivery trucks not showing up at all with the meals they need for that day. Delivery trucks showing up half full. We're hearing left and right that, you know, vendors are dropping contracts with little to no notice. And these folks are still showing up every day to feed our kids. So the fact that they won't have these flexibilities moving forward is a major concern. And I'll also add, these meals have been free for families. And they'll need to start communicating to parents and families now if that free meal program goes away. And so we really want to ensure that they have every piece of knowledge they need to make the best decisions for their students next year. Jillian, how many kids are experiencing food insecurity and how prevalent is this issue? Well, I will say, you know, in Arkansas specifically, we're looking at about 200,000 households with children experiencing food insecurity within the past seven days. 
And I, I will add, you referenced the CDC survey, which, you know, obviously is, is critical information. And it's telling us that, you know, of children nationwide, zero to 17, over 10% are experiencing food insecurity on a regular basis. But I will add is that those numbers are drastically higher for communities of color and children of color. So it's really disproportionate. You know, um, in, in non-Hispanic black households, we're looking at almost 19% food insecurity. And in Hispanic households with children, we're looking at almost 16%. That's as compared to non-Hispanic white children who are experiencing food insecurity, about 6.5% of that population. But that's not to even speak of the extent of this issue in immigrant communities where the fear of the public charge rule has created a chilling effect that has, you know, frankly resulted in a lot of families disenrolling from benefits, but also not responding to those types of surveys for fear of outing their immigration status. And so I don't think we actually know the full scope of hunger in this country as it pertains to communities of color. And will schools be able to keep serving summer meals at all if the USDA waiver expires? The challenge there is actually the a, a waiver that has been hugely, hugely helpful, particularly in rural communities, has been allowing schools below a certain poverty threshold to serve these meals for free. Now, under a traditional meals program to operate these meals, 50% or more of the kids in your community must be qualified for free reduced price lunch. That has not been applied during this pandemic, thankfully, because that rule really hurts rural areas where poverty is more widely dispersed and you may not have those concentrations. But in rural areas, these challenges are even more complicated because, you know, the the ability to access a summer meal site, it's not walkable. There aren't buses running. So transportation is a huge hindrance. The opportunity to get to a grocery store to use your SNAP or WIC cards is often really challenging as well. And a lot of these kids are home. And so families need to provide three meals a day, which further tightens their already tight budgets. So we normally promote the summer meals program. We're encouraging schools and community sponsors to operate it. But in a lot of these areas where persistent poverty is an incredible challenge, they can't operate these meals if waivers aren't extended. Jillian, what can people in school districts do right now? Please call your Congress representatives. Um, We are asking Congress to authorize the USDA to grant nationwide nutrition waivers to really help them assist schools in responding to new challenges in real time. Um, We are hoping that folks will remember the urgency of this issue. You know, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an intense focus on hunger and the role of school and community meals in alleviating that issue. We saw news stories consistently showing food bank lines, showing school distribution. That narrative has gone by the wayside. However, these school and community meal providers are still showing up every day. People aren't thinking of of hunger in the way they did at the start of the pandemic. And so it's up to us as an organization to really continue that drumbeat so people remember there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids still struggling. And it's our responsibility as a nation to use every lever we have to meet that need. What does the outlook look like for this waiver to be extended in Congress? I'm not a betting person, so I'm not going to put odds on that, but we're really anxious. I'm particularly anxious because, as I mentioned, we're in a real time crunch. 
This isn't something that can come out June 29, which it has previously when these waivers have been extended. Unfortunately, we've waited until the last minute to let folks know. And that really challenges folks to find the staffing, to purchase the food, to have their meal service operations in place. We need to know now. Frankly, we need to know yesterday. So we are hoping that folks will remember the urgency and will remember that despite the numbers that are being reported, those numbers aren't really showing what it's like on the ground for families that don't know where their next meal is coming from. I'm not confident as of this moment that folks in Congress will prioritize this given all of the other priorities they're currently confronting. And we by no means are trying to minimize the other issues that Congress is grappling with. We're just asking that they remember there's a pretty easy fix for this. We don't need new legislation. We don't need new programs stood up. We need to continue to allow schools and communities to do what they do best and to do it how they've been doing it for the past two years. Just continue to let us run with what we're doing. That's all we're asking. Jillian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to Jillian Meyer, a director at No Kid Hungry in Washington, D.C., by Zoom. For more information about childhood food insecurity and the organization, visit nokidhungry.org. Just ahead on Ozarks at Large, John Brummett and Roby Brock have their weekly political discussion. The Scott Family Amazium will host a COVID-19 vaccination event from 9 until noon Saturday at the museum in Bentonville. The event will be a collaboration between the Amazium and several other organizations, including the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, Benton County, the Marshallese Educational Initiative, and the Northwest Arkansas Council. The Rave Cultural Foundation welcomes NWA Chai Time, the third Sunday of each month. These family-friendly get-togethers will feature a sponsor expert sharing knowledge on topics such as gardening, writing a memoir, and more. Events are free, but registration is required. RaveCulturalFoundation.org for more information. BWC Assemble, a quarterly series of conversations led by women in the C-suite, launches March 15th. This inaugural program will teach attendees how to articulate their value proposition and create strategies to support their professional goals. Complimentary access for students, educators, and entrepreneurs is available. NWABusinessWomensConference.com for tickets and information. They're off and running. Candidates finished filing for political office last week, and we're roughly two and a half months away from party primaries. And this week, the fiscal session of the Arkansas legislature is ending. This week, Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, asked John Brummett, political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, what he's paying attention to as the 2022 election year gears up. Well, there's a pretty good front page piece in the Democrat Gazette yesterday. There are more contests in the, in the primaries than in the general election. And nearly all the contests in the primaries, of course, are Republican. Uh, there are a few few places where Democrats are having uh, primaries. That's in, in terms of the legislature. I'm, talk- I'm watching re- Republican infighting in the legislature. I will tell you that I've had occasion to have conversations over the recent weeks with state senator, Republican state senators, and the way they talk about each other and the spitefulness about this about their personal conflicts and the, and, the, and the reasonable conservatives versus the less reasonable versus the totally unreasonable. That's what I'm watching. And whether, and whether uh, uh, the, the temperament of the Senate uh, can change and whether the, the Republicanism will move more to a conventional 
perfectly fine conservatism and away from this <clears throat> Trumpy uh, resentment-based uh, conservatism. And there are four or five races out there on the Republican side in the Senate that will show that. Uh, and, and I'll be watching those. <clears throat> I'm also truly fascinated. I, have, I wasn't for a while, but now I am. Uh, what I thought to be the most popular Republican in Arkansas, the mild-mannered, perfectly inoffensive uh, John Bozeman. Remember when he ran the first time when the Senate vacancy opened and he had like seven or eight opponents and he beat them all without a runoff. And it, it, it showed me this guy is stout in the Republican Party. He is beloved. We'll find out if he still is and find out how, how much uh, uh, Republican relations uh, have deteriorated since then because I'm, I'm interested in this, in this Beckett, this football star who's, who's got a pack that's spending money and going to continue, I guess, to spend money, uh, reminding everyone that he's a conservative warrior, a Christian, a Razorback, and anything else that might hurt him in a, a politically in a Republican primary, and calling a, a Bozeman a, a Republican in name only. While he's got Trump's endorsement, which Sarah Sanders probably got for him, uh, suddenly I'm interested in that. Most likely, Bozeman will proceed to uh, uh, impressive renomination. But the trip there to, uh, is going to be something I'll be keeping my eye on. The fiscal session coming to an end supposedly on Tuesday. Uh, there was a bunch of rigmarole over the funding of Arkansas PBS, the public television station. In the end, its budget passes after all of the sound and fury Explain to people why you knew this was inevitably going to happen, but we had to go through that dog and pony show for a few weeks. It's inevitably going to happen because the game is uh, very conservative, uh, extreme conservative Republicans in the legislature, just a few in this case, uh, persuaded some enough of their colleagues, uh, we need to send a message to this channel, this AETN. Uh, they just hired a liberal to do some education programming and sell that stuff on there. Big Bird sounds a little more liberal than he used to. And we need to send a message that we're in charge now and they've got to deal with us and they've got to reflect our values. I remember Frank White was governor sending a letter to the governor's school saying, I want you to stop having, having all these instructors and, and, and reflect my values, which was an uproar at the time. It's less so now because we have devolved in our political thinking. But that's what it was about. It was most likely, almost assuredly, eventually going to pass with either an interim study of, which we didn't get, of AETN, uh, or this sort of admonishment. Here's your money, one more time, but we've made it clear to you, we're watching you. Now, what does that mean? I think it means sitting up there at, uh, at AETN, they've got to think hard about uh, every frontline documentary, every American experience show. Uh, who they got on Austin city limits? Is he liable to say something? I mean, I think, I think it's, 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 a, it's a hamstringing or an onerous cloud hanging over the people trying to run public television. And it's deeply unfortunate. Uh, I would have preferred this is going to sound outrageous, but I almost would prefer they just let it go dark and let us live with that kind of thinking and see how we like, it, you know, but uh, that, of course, was never going to happen. So we've got we've got people running our public television operation here in Arkansas. We've got to deal with the fact that we better we better do more screening and pondering some of what we're putting on the air because we have heard the word.
That's what I think it means. And it's not good. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Roby Brock is with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. They also discussed last week's State of the Union address from President Biden. You can hear why John Brummett thinks those primetime speeches could just go away by going to the full conversation at talkbusiness.net. The 2021-2022 Broadway season at Walton Arts Center isn't over yet. There are runs of Hamilton and Fiddler on the Roof yet to be staged. But last night, the Walton Arts Center announced the next season, from My Fair Lady to Moulin Rouge, bringing a total of 26 Tony Awards with those productions. We asked Jennifer Ross, Director of Programming at the venue, and Scott Galbraith, the Vice President of Programming and Executive Director at Walton Arts Center, to give us the rundown of shows that will conclude next May with Town and begins in August of this year with My Fair Lady, finally. We actually announced My Fair Lady was coming, and then the pandemic happened. And so um, we're so excited to be the last tour stop um, for this tour. Um, My Fair Lady will be packing up as soon as the, the shows are over here in Fayetteville. And I'm absolutely thrilled that we're finally going to be able to bring it to Northwest Arkansas. It's a gorgeous production of this um, work, and it's a new work by Lincoln Center, uh, similar to the productions that we did of The King and I and South Pacific several years ago. So it's lush, the costumes are gorgeous, and it's just a fantastic retelling of this tale with a slight blip at the end. Yeah, slightly, slightly, different. Slightly, contem- slightly contemporary. But Lincoln Center Theater has really done this well over the last... I don't know how many years, of taking classic American musicals and not changing them, but allowing us to see them through a 21st century lens that really brings out the social issues that were always there, that Rodgers and Hammerstein and others put in these these early shows. Um, But we now see them in, in a new light. So we're, we're seeing it through the original lens, but we're also laying on the 21st century lens that really is illuminating. And My Fair Lady does that. And to a large, I mean, it's based on the play Pygmalion. It has always been about misogyny and the difference of the classes, and that's very much there. But you look at misogyny through a, a culture that has a Me Too lens, and now the show has even more relevance than it ever did. I know you say a contemporary bent, and, and, and I don't want to take, don't answer this, don't spoil anything, but I recently watched the film version again. And the very, very ending is either problematic or too clever by half, or I don't know. I mean, the final exchange between Liza Doolittle and, and the professor. And that is precisely the just moment wait. that Jennifer was okay. just referring okay. to, is that they do clearly look at that moment and let us look at it differently. Absolutely. My Fair Lady will be here in August, the next month. Kind of a similar, but kind of not, Pretty Woman the Musical. It absolutely is similar. There's, They both sort of have a Cinderella story aspect to them, um, and they both are about um, the the value that lives in us that, that often gets looked over because of our language, because of our profession, because of those Class. things. But exactly. Yeah. So th- they are strikingly similar in that way, and that's about where they stop because musically they're different, choreographically they're different – uh, uh, that take place in different centuries. And so we talk about applying a 21st century lens to My Fair Lady. This is a 21st century lens. It is very contemporary. Uh, but uh, it is directed by Jerry Mitchell, who for my money is one of the best uh, director choreographers we have. Kinky Boots, uh, Hairspray, Legally Blonde. So it's a, it's a really upbeat, engaging musical with very important subject matter. 
Absolutely. And the score was written by Brian Adams and Jim Valance. And so the score is lots of fun, very contemporary. And it it's based on the movie that Julia Roberts and Richard Gere starred in. And so it, it really is the story come to life on stage. Chicago, then the next one in November. It's classic Kander Neb, and they they are masters of this. And then you layer Bob Fosse choreography on top, and I'm sorry, but it's just entertaining. <laughs> right, and really fun and clever songs about women doing people in who have done them wrong. Yes. So that's really fun, too. Um, I also enjoy, in Chicago, the musical, just the sheer fun that the people on stage are having um, in presenting this show. So it's, it is it is a lot of fun. Uh, the story is sometimes you hear it and you go, oh, oh, ouch. Um, but it really moves the story along. And like Scott said, it's, it's a satire of being famous and what people will do to, to get famous. Um, so it's a little... A little icky, <laughs> but it's fantastic. It'd be nice to think that we've moved past. I was about to say, <laughs> <laughs> move past sort of trial by publicity, but clearly we have not. And clearly, so this is a satire on that whole industry, if you will. Right. In January, Tootsie, another musical that's based on a popular film from Tootsie was in the eighties, right? Tootsie was in the eighties, and I believe Pretty Woman in the nineties. Okay. Yeah. So okay. We're a couple generations yeah. we're covering here. But yeah, it, uh, amazingly, I did not know this until really researching the the show, but this um, was deemed a significant enough film by the Library of Congress that it has been preserved in, in like a National Archive of Film, which is, I think is, is fantastic for the storyline. I will tell you, though, when they created this musical, yes, it's based on the film, but they basically took the DNA of the film and and retold it from an, from a 21st century perspective. There's a lot of that. Um, Broadway is going through a significant social, racial, um, mm-hmm. uh, gender um, reckoning appropriately, and this is one of the one of the ways that that's happening. But so it, it contains all the characters that we love and a lot of the situations we know. It is hysterically funny, but at the root of it, they are. It is about you know when you can't do the one thing you love. How far are you willing to go to make that happen? And in this case, the character makes some horrible decisions about how far they right. will go. Absolutely. Um, but the show doesn't make fun of – this is no secret. Tipsy is about a, a man who, who, who pretends to be a woman, dresses up as a woman in order to get a, an acting job. Uh, and it, but it's hysterically funny. And it's not about – no one's making fun of the fact that – He's doing that. It's not like they're making fun of people who are right. gender fluid or, right. or, or, or trans. But it – because he goes through an epiphanal process. He realizes in the course like, ooh, this is bad. I've made a serious mistake. And then it's, there's further comedy around his reconciling with that and coming to terms with it and the enlightenment that he, he walks away with. Absolutely. In February, Moulin Rouge is here. I've only seen this on film and I, my senses were – almost overloaded. So much happens. What is it like in person? Similar. <laughs> it's very much the same. Um, I just saw this in December um, because it, it sort of opened right as the pandemic was was coming on and I didn't have the chance to see it in, uh, on Broadway before then. So I saw it in December with my son and we were in the theater just, I mean, wide-eyed, mouths hanging open. Holy cow, this theater is packed full. And we know that on the road, it won't be quite as spectacular as it is on Broadway. 
But my goodness, we know that it's going to be gorgeous. Yeah, but in New York, you know, when you're playing for a long run, you can literally transform the theater. Sure. You know, like cats painted the theater black, and I mean, it put eyes all over the place. So this is a tradition that that is longstanding. Is a shows in New York, they that's develop your home. That, that's your home for several years. That is not the case on the road. So some of it gets pared down a little bit. But from what I have seen, it is not very much. There were two significant set pieces that honestly looked fantastic but weren't really practical. They were visual only. And so those won't travel. You're not going to miss them. The, the, the scale of the story, the, the saturation of colors, the musicality, and the music is amazing because it's like 60 different or 160 different uh, composers have been a part of this, including you know people like Adele and Beyonce. I mean, it is so much like the film in its um, sort of musical anachronistic way that it mm-hmm. takes music that's contemporary and puts it into the story from from the 1890s, but it all works beautifully. And we are absolutely thrilled to have two of the most contemporary best musical winners on our next season, um, Hadestown being one, Moulin Rouge being the other. Um, Hadestown is a wonderful story. Check your Greek mythology before you come, just so you remember the stories. But it's about Hades and Persephone and Orpheus and Eurydice. And it's a gorgeous love story times two. Um, It's the story of spring coming again and then the deep, dark depression that happens when spring has to go to Hades or when, you know, fall and winter come. Um, The story is jazzy because it's set in a New Orleans type setting. The music is haunting. It will stay with you for a while. Um, And the message will too, I think. Absolutely. This is, I, I, I often try and figure out what show does this remind me of or what are the comparables for the show? And I, I still have a hard time coming up with any. It, it's rare that you say there's a new voice, but this kind of is. Mm-hmm. It is this blend of American folk and New Orleans jazz that is uniquely Anais Mitchell for the show. And I just can't think of anything else, you know, musically that reminded me of it. But um, the story is, is – uh, is timeless. It's it's love story, so it's easy to engage with. The characters are compelling. There are three women who sort of form a Greek chorus kind of effect. They are my favorite part of the show because the musical intensity and harmony of, of they're called the Fates is spellbinding. But visually, it's spectacular, and I love the fact that so this whole theme, this whole season, really has a a, a thematic thread to it about yeah. the celebration of women, and Hades Town is one of the very few shows in Broadway history that was completely written by a, by a female voice, by a woman, by Anais Mitchell. Book, music, lyrics. It's like the fourth time in the history of Broadway that it's happened and not for the last decade. So when this happens, that in and of itself makes it important. To then have it be so good, so compelling, so contemporary is just a treat. Scott Galbraith and Jennifer Ross with the Walton Art Center discuss the next Broadway season at the venue with us inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. More information about the season and tickets at waltonartcenter.org. And that's next season. The season after, we do know that To Kill a Mockingbird is part of that 2023-24 season. Oh, and by the way, venerable rock band ZZ Top is coming back to Northwest Arkansas. It was announced yesterday the Texas-based band is scheduled to perform at the Walmart Amp Wednesday, June 29th. Tickets go on sale Friday morning. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, bringing live music to the auditorium in Eureka Springs. 
Appearing Wednesday, March 23rd, is American singer, songwriter Lyle Lovett and his acoustic band. And performing Friday, March 25th, is the Marshall Tucker Band 50th Anniversary Tour with the Outlaws. Tickets at thundertix.com for more. Good Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large. The Gods of Green County is a new novel by author Mary Elizabeth Pope, set in northeast Arkansas in the 1920s. Coralie Harper's older brother is killed by the sheriff, and she struggles to recover from the loss. Coralie begins to see her dead brother around town, leaving people wondering if she's experiencing hallucinations, if she's clairvoyant, or both. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore recently spoke with Pope and asked her about her connection to Arkansas, even though she grew up in Michigan. So I grew up in Michigan, as you as you mentioned, but my father grew up in uh, the boot heel of Missouri and um, in the very sort of toe of it, so the in Cardwell, uh, and it's it, the town is like literally surrounded by Arkansas. <laughs> so when I was trying to figure out like where I was going to locate the story, because it's based on some real events in my family, um, my family history, so I decided that. Arkansas was really kind of a more accurate place to set it because my grandparents were both born in Greene County, Arkansas, and they were married at the Greene County Courthouse, and they lived in Cardwell, and they raised my father there, and I grew up going to visit all the time. But because the town was perched right on the line of, of um, between Missouri and Arkansas, we were constantly crossing to visit relatives, to go to Paragould, because that was the nearest, you know, big big city for us to, you know, get anything we needed. And so I spent a lot of time in, in Paragold in Jonesboro, where my dad went to college and graduate school. Uh, and my mother taught actually at Lake City. So I, I just spent a lot of time there. And I heard all of these amazing stories uh, about my family, two of which were the legal cases that appear in the novel. One of the things that I really appreciated about the book, and we'll dig into it a little bit here, is that each chapter is written through the first-person view of the different characters throughout the story. And as I'm as I was reading the book, the thing that really kind of stuck out to me was this idea of who is a reliable narrator and who <laughs> is not. Um, can you talk a little bit about the um, maybe what was going through your head as you're thinking about the idea of just because someone is telling a story doesn't mean that that's the truth? Sure. I, yeah, I, I am, I've always been fascinated by first-person narrators, and the way that characters often come to me is that I, I begin to kind of hear them, um, little snippets of their voices kind of explaining themselves and justifying their behavior, and, and, and I write it all down, and eventually I have enough to kind of work with for a character. Um, and, of course, my grandparents are the basis for Coralie and Earl in the, in the book. Um, and so I knew my grandmother's like exterior voice. Uh, what I didn't know was her, like her inner life at all. I had no access to that at all. She was, as Coralie is described in the story, she doesn't know how to talk to people and, um, and she knows that about herself, but I, so I really had to kind of invent a voice for her. And in terms of reliability, particularly with her character, because she is the one who sees things that other people question the veracity of, um, I, I decided to depend upon my own experience with her growing up, uh, which was that she hallucinated. And she would call us. This is a really great example of, of the kind of thing that informed my writing of Coralie. Uh, when I was about 
10 or 11, and my sister was maybe seven, she called my mother um, and congratulated her on having a third child. And we don't have a third sibling. <laughs> and my mother said, Delia, I'm really sorry, but uh, like you must be mistaken. I, I haven't had a, I haven't had another baby. And so they got off the phone, and my mother thought she had convinced her that this was true. And about a week later, we got a package of baby clothes in the mail. <laughs> um, and so that those kinds of episodes really helped me understand that my grandmother's hallucinations were, I think, more real to her sometimes than what she was actually experiencing with the people around her. So in writing her character, one of the things that was really difficult for me, was trying to make a decision about whether I needed to kind of flag the reader uh, that she, that what she's seeing wasn't real or not. And I decided to just let the reader make that decision the same way we had to. Um, so you don't know what Coral, if what Coralie is telling you is true or if it's a hallucination or, you know, like it's, and I, and I, I, that's one, that's a part of the book that I've ended up really liking is that I, I just sort of leave it in the hands of the reader. Uh, and I feel like, you know, also with, with Earl and Leroy, uh, they are characters who are, you know, have their own motivations for the things that they do. Um, and it's been very interesting for me, because I was sort of trying to represent them as I imagined they justify. I mean, I know there are certain things that happen in the book, uh, one of which is a confrontation between uh, between uh, Leroy and Earl following Coralie's sanity hearing. <laughs> and that actually happened. And that was one of the only pieces of information I had about the judge who was involved in this case. And um, so I was really just trying to have them tell their side of things. But of course, they have their own motivations for doing that. And I think that I hope <laughs> that I was able to build, you know, enough sympathy for their circumstances, you know, that the care, that the readers understand when they make decisions, what's informing them. But yes, I mean, it is always someone's perspective and it's one person's version of things against another person's version of things. The church is another element of this that I think is really fascinating. Um, and especially as we think of the church's influence on the South, especially, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the pastor and the church as a whole kind of becoming perhaps an enabler of Coralie and taking advantage of her in ways that uh, can be pretty manipulative. What was your thought process behind um, the church and the relationship and how she was able to maybe justify some of her hallucinations or justify some of her actions as being uh, divine in a way? Yeah. So the basis for the the church and my and Coralie's involvement with it is is based on my grandmother. My grandmother was a snake handling Pentecostal, and I went to church with her when I was a kid. So I my, I think my father was careful to make sure we didn't go on days that were actually snakes there. <laughs> um, but it was uh, but it was really like you know I was raised in you know sort of very tame Protestant. We moved around a lot because my father was never very comfortable going to church because of his experience growing up. Um, and, but I mean, when we went with her, it was like nothing we'd ever seen before. And, um, and it was really fascinating to me. I mean, I feel like all of these things are the reason this book exists because, <laughs> because I, I, I experienced some of them, but um, I'm really glad that I did because it really helped me understand, first of all, that I, I ultimately think in my, in my grandmother's case, and of course she was the inspiration for Coralie, 
that her face was really important to her and really um, a source of solace and um, comfort after, you know, her brother was killed by uh, a sheriff. That's actually a real story. My father's family, uh, my great uncle was killed by a sheriff on the main street of town in Cardwell. And she turned to the church after that. And so her engagement with the church and her, you know, I mean, if you're looking at this from a religious perspective, you might say what she sees is our visions, you know, that they're not, they shouldn't be stigmatized. They should be celebrated. They should be embraced. And I feel like the the church does that for her. Um, At the same time, (laughs) um, they're also looking to raise money. And so that's a, that's a, and that was true for my grandmother. And a lot of what happens in the, the sanity hearing that happens in the book happened in the case of my my grandmother's case. So it was really, uh, it was really difficult for me. I didn't, I really, really didn't want to uh, represent the church negatively because I, I feel like it was very good for my grandmother. But I also understood that there were things that she was uh, a part of that she wasn't fully aware, you know, that she was being used in certain ways. And so it's, it was very tricky to kind of walk that line. Um and I know later in her life, the church, she never left, you know, the difference between real life and the book is that my grandmother never left the church. She was committed. Um, she came home and she went back to the church. It was a different, a different pastor then. Um, and I think by the time I came along, uh, it was a different, you know, a different pastor again. But I wanted to make her experience with the church something that was consistent and um, her faith something that stayed with her throughout her life. And so that's, that's, where that came from. Mary Elizabeth, uh, you will be live at a bookstore in Fort Smith. Can you tell us a little bit about that event? I will be. I will be at Bookish in Fort Smith on Wednesday, March 9th at six o'clock. Um, and I'll be giving a reading and doing a book signing there. Uh, and if you can't make that, I will also be at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville on Sunday, March 13th at four o'clock. Very good. I've been speaking with Mary Elizabeth Pope. She's the author of Gods of Green County. Mary Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Mary Elizabeth Pope speaking with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore about her novel, Gods of Green County. You can hear from her yourself tomorrow evening at 6 at Bookish in Fort Smith. And she'll be in Fayetteville at Pearl's Books on Sunday afternoon at 4. Imagine, if you can that it is 1999. Payphones are still easy to find. You can go buy a CD or rent a movie in many stores in your town. You had to wait in line to buy movie tickets. You probably pay your bills by mailing in checks, and you may have checked on your investments by looking in the newspaper, which you can get on almost any corner. A lot has changed in the last two decades, mostly due to the internet. Think about it. The music and movie industry, newspaper business, telephone companies, and more are vastly different than they used to be. And now, it's happening with money. Bitcoin is down 13% this week because, well, Elon Musk said something about it. That was when El Salvador became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Basically said people could buy stuff with it, pay their taxes with it. Mark Zuckerberg says the metaverse is not just the next chapter of his company. It's the next chapter of the Internet. Welcome to the future of money, where we will discuss all things in the realm of cryptocurrency, blockchain, mining, the metaverse and more. 
to get us ready for this new future. The Future of Money, a new podcast produced by KUAF with your host, Eric Denboer, available at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Milton Grammarian, Catherine Charles. Hello. Hello. If I invite you over, mm-hmm. which of these might you say to Laura? I'm going to take her a bottle of wine or I'm going to bring her a bottle of wine. I'm going to take is mm-hmm. what I say. That's what I say. Okay. Growing up, I never thought about bring and take as a, as a usage issue. Yeah. It just came naturally to me. Even now, when I hear it used in a way that I think is incorrect, it's jarring. If you had said, I'm going to bring her. But I tell you what, I found out in this, it ain't that big a deal to switch them up. (laughs) And there is a rule. Okay. But there seems to be a tolerance for casual use of either bring or take in most usages. And what really caught my interest is that in nearly every sentence, you can usually justify under the rule the use of either one. Okay. Okay. So the general rule simply stated is you bring things here, Mm -hmm. you take things there. Yeah, I think that's that's how I generally would use it, I think. Both words describe the movement of something from one location to another. Bring describes the movement of something toward a specified location. Although I would say that's take. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you're bringing it toward me. Right. Yeah. Uh, Like if I'll bring, you forgot your keys, I'll bring them to you at your office. Yeah. But you could also take them to me. Yeah. It's funny. It's like if I'm talking to you, I think uh-huh. I'm going to say, I'll bring you the keys. Uh-huh. But if I'm talking to my coworker, I'm, I'm going to take, take her them. the keys. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's when it jars me is when in the second instance you say to the coworker, I'm going to bring Catherine oh. her keys. No, 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 no. But no. I hear it. Well. I hear it. Um, so bring describes the movement of something toward a specific right. a location. Take generally describes the movement of something away from a location. Makes I'm sense to me. I'm going to take the right. wine to her. Right. Yeah. After all, when you want to eat restaurant food safely at home, they don't call it bring out. No. Put another way, bring is in relation to a destination, and take is in relation to a starting point. Okay. So where was the thing at the beginning, okay. if it was like in your possession or something, right? Then you take it. I got you. I, yeah, it, it, I'm just like you. It's just a natural yeah. thing to me. It's really hard to describe because it's natural. Okay, Kyle, what's the difference in these two sentences? Either is correct, mm-hmm. but what's the perspective? Bring a jacket with you versus take a jacket with you. Bring a jacket with you. All right, so. I am telling you that we're going to go to an outdoor skating rink. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling you, bring a jacket mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. When you're joining another person. Right. That's what, mm-hmm. But take a jacket with you. Where That's when I'm leaving the house with my wife. And she says, you know, take a jacket That's with right. you. Okay. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. I had to think that through. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's, you know, I, when I started looking at this, I thought, man, I could almost justify anything yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. <clears throat> Here's another sentence that is good with either bring or take, depending on the perspective. Where you want to place the emphasis of the sentence. If I ask you, is your brother bringing his girlfriend to the party? Or is your brother taking his girlfriend to the party? Okay, now I may be overthinking this, but I'm thinking if you say, if you hear bringing, it's like you're already at the party. And they're 
you're expecting them to arrive. Is he bringing her? And if when I hear taking, it's like before the party, like, is your brother going to take his girlfriend to the party? Mm -hmm. I think that the way I said it is, is your brother bringing his girlfriend to the party as opposed to somebody else? You you included somebody else in there. So he would, the sister would be there, right? Is your brother bringing Mm -hmm. his girlfriend? Right. I'm already at the party Uh when that gets asked. Right, right. Exactly. But for me, yeah. taking is someone's on the phone, like the party hasn't started exactly. yet. Okay. Exactly, yeah. If you want to focus on the party, you're mm-hmm. already at the party. You say he is bringing her, imagining everyone at the party in the future. And you can right. do that. You don't have to be at the party. You can be imagining that you're at yes. the party. Is yes. he bringing his yes. girlfriend? absolutely. Uh, if you want to focus on the here and now, you write from the perspective of home. Then you say he will be taking her to the party, which puts the focus on taking her away from the house. Yeah. I have to say, I've never thought about the difference between I, these two either. words until today. Me either. <laughs> but, but it's always bugged me when I hear someone yeah. say that sounds wrong to me. And there are some really right. wrong ones, you know, in my, my feeling. Are you a fan of Monty Python? Uh, sometimes. In <laughs> the Holy Grail, <laughs> you know, it's during the plague. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Yeah. They don't say take out your dead. They say bring right. out, bring them to me. Bring yeah, because the because yeah. the the wagon the cart, with yes. all the dead people yes. is already there. Sometimes though, the difference between the two can make a definite difference in meaning. Kyle, which of these invokes the more physical action? She wanted to take him down. She wanted to bring him down. Take him down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So explain the difference between the two. Well, take someone down, it's like undercut them. I mean, get them out of this position of power. Yeah, or maybe even take them down to the ground. Right. Yeah. Bring them down. That just sounds like I'm going to bring them down to the cabin for the weekend or mm-hmm. something. That sounds mm-hmm. much more. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. yeah. But you also can use it in a negative way. And I'm going to bring him down. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, Although I think maybe even then I would prefer take. Yeah. yeah. Take. Is mm-hmm. yeah, the freedictionary.com lists several definitions for each of these phrases. Bring down as we have used it, but also to include lowering prices, mm-hmm. defeating foes, and helping a person recover from ingestion of drugs. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's got all of those meanings. Take down as we have used it as a physical act, but also figuratively as taking down a politician for his vote on taxes. Right, right. Or criticism of someone's performance. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, Kyle, let's try some quiz questions. Let's do it. The answers will be either bring or take and maybe both. It looks like rain. Remember to blank an umbrella if you go out. Since you said if, I haven't gone out yet, so take the that's umbrella. That's right. That's right. That's gotcha. good. And I had underlined that part, and that's, that's, that's what makes the difference. I'm starving. I hope you remembered to blank some food. Bring some food, because mm-hmm. I'm starving now. Because we're there together, yes. and we're hungry, and yes. if not, you're going to have to go get takeout. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. We're bringing out, yes. Have you blanked the dog to the vet yet? Taken. Because mm-hmm. it's yet. Yeah, it's in the future. Right. You're not there. Mm-hmm. Right. Come here and blank this newspaper to your father. I would say take. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, this one created mental calisthenics for me because I kept messing with it. Depending on who's speaking. Exactly. If I am the father, because 
you do that, right? And I, you refer to yourself in the yeah. third person, yeah. Bring to your Bring father. Bring this, yeah. this to your exactly. father, yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And um, and where is the newspaper? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, I'm leaving now, so I'll see you in 15 minutes. Shall I blank Take. some snacks? I'm leaving now. I'm not there yet. Okay. So it could be either. Oh. Shall I take some of the snacks we have here? Oh. Or shall I get some snacks for us when I see you in 15 minutes? Mm. I'll see you in 15 minutes. Shall I bring some snacks? That sounds right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. You're right. You're right. Mm -hmm. As a final note, Kyle, the words come and go follow rules that are similar to those for bring and take. Come is like bring. All right. I'm going to mm-hmm. come over to your house. You you ask people to come here, to come where you I'm are. I'm going to go to Cheryl's house. Uh-huh. Go is like take. You tell people to go away, <laughs> to move away from your location. This is so interesting because I think as we grow up, our brains just... We just learn it naturally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, as for me, i got to go. <laughs> our militant grammarian is Catherine Sherald's. tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, there are many types of law, including copyright, criminal, real estate. We'll tell you about construction law, a forum taking place at the University of Arkansas Law School later this month, places its focus on construction law. That and much more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. On 91.3 KUAF, you can listen when you want by subscribing to the absolutely free KUAF Ozarks at Large podcast that's available wherever you already get podcasts. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lowell. KUAF can be heard anywhere when you use our free KUAF app. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Matthew Moore, and our militant grammarian, Catherine Sheralds. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Our weekly conversations between Roby Brock and John Brummett are part of our ongoing partnership with Talk Business and Politics. The new staff at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock in Central Arkansas, contributed to the program today as well. We do have another show for you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. Thank you for spending time with us on this Tuesday. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please take care of yourself.